Economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show. I'm Dr. Levi Russell, and with me I have my co-hosts, Dr. Russ McCullough and Dr. Justin Clark. Okay, well, we got a special guest today, and uh, it is Wiley Angel. Um, I, uh, I hold the Wayne Angel Chair of Economics here at Ottawa University, and honored to have that, and been here for about nine years. I came in 2011, and so Wayne was a longtime professor. He was an undergraduate here, went to KU for his PhD in economics, uh, and then came back and was a professor, and then in uh, 1986 was appointed to the Federal Reserve Board of Governors and went on to have a Wall Street career, and he was our first million-dollar donor back to the university that helped create my position. I kind of give a little of that background because his son has then went on to have a successful career in the finance uh, world. Um, so Wiley is uh, currently in St. Louis where he... Uh, watches a portfolio of around $10 billion, uh, Famco, and uh, he uh, got his start from his roots here at Ottawa University, so that's kind of a neat thing that I'll have him touch on, and and uh, uh, certainly was influenced by his dad, and so we'd like him to get into some of his experiences uh, at Ottawa, as well as his faith life, and, and then we'll um, kind of take it from there. He had a few things to say to my class earlier on tariffs, uh, some opinions, so he keeps tabs on all the global economy, so I think we can easily bring some of those topics in as well. So, uh, Wiley, if you want to just start off and um, tell us a little bit about your journey here at Ottawa. Yeah, thanks. It's great to be here. I um, This is a, a place that's near and dear to my heart. I grew up uh, right down the street, uh, just a few blocks from here. I was born at Ransom Memorial Hospital a few blocks from here, kind of my entire life until I was 25 was all in the And you were at Ottawa High School, too. Ottawa High School, right? yeah. Okay. Ottawa High School. My son graduated from there. So. Yeah, and I, I have a good friend in St. Louis. Again. Now, wait a second. Was Cornhaus then your econ professor at Ottawa High? Cornhaus was not teaching He econ. wasn't there yet. He was, uh, it was, his dad was my gym coach. Okay. Okay. All right. I just had to ask that. You're talking I, about Chris Cornhaus. Yes. Chris yeah. Cornhaus, yes. because uh, I learned that your dad was influential in developing yes. the economics program at the high school. And then I that just saw him. That after I was at high school. Okay. Yeah. So I, I grew up here. I live in St. Louis. One of my close friends there is a guy named Sean Patty. Uh, Sean's dad, Jack Patty, was uh, an English professor here. And uh, we grew up together in church and and Sean actually left and went to Lindsberg High School, uh, Lindsberg uh, College, and played football. But uh, a lot of connections with Ottawa, and it's great to be back in town and, and see all the friendly faces. All right. Um, and so tell us a little bit about uh, Roger Fredrickson and his uh, – uh, our audience goes kind of beyond Ottawa, but I think it's interesting. You can kind of just generalize that to faith and finance. Kind of talk as your walk through life of that over time. Yeah, so Roger Fredrickson was, was my dad's mentor. Uh, my dad, early uh, in his life, when you hear his life story, at one point thought he was going to become a pastor. Mm -hmm. um, and so when he came to Ottawa University uh, in, uh, I guess, 1950, 1948, um, Roger Fredrickson was the, I believe he was the 
chaplain and, and professor of religion. And so you got to know Roger pretty well. So big influence on my dad's life, uh, big influence on my life. And uh, what I learned from my father, I learned a lot from my father, obviously, about the markets and the economy and various things, life. But uh, I learned that you can be an economist and a Christian, a person of faith. And, uh, and those two things are not, although they might seem like they're contradictory, they don't, and they can be, they don't have to be. So how do you incorporate that being, uh, oh, I use air quotes here, Wall Street-ish, since you're in St. Louis, you're not technically on Wall Street, but yeah. here you are managing a multi-billion dollar portfolio and out to make profit and right. maximize this or that. And how does that fit in with a Christian worldview for you? Well, I, I believe that free markets and, and economics and, and the system of government that we have with its flaws is amazing. And it lifts people out of poverty um, and it creates all kinds of opportunities to do philanthropic things in the world. But, but the economy itself is, I think, uh, obviously you can have, there's people in the business world that, that are unscrupulous and do things to get ahead and so forth. But as I run my business, um, I am, uh, I treat my, my people well. And I, as we talked earlier, Russ, is I've got some people who work for me who I want to make sure they're owners in my business and have the opportunity to advance their careers. I got a really interesting question in your class today from a mm -hmm. young lady who asked me about the balance of, of work and, and, and your uh, private life and keeping the balance there. I thought that was a really uh, incredible Yeah, share with the listeners what you said on that. I, I think that was interesting, your approach to the timing of the markets and rest and whatnot. Yeah, I'd say it's, uh, as a person that, that grew up in the financial markets, there's something, I, I believe biblically, there's, there's, a, uh, a, there's seasons of life and there's seasons of the day and there's, there's a Sabbath and there's, so I think that, I think it's biblical and I think it's human nature to be able to have, have to work and to be able to relax. And so having a career in a, in a world where there's times where the market's open and times when market's closed, I think has been a good thing for me in my career where if the, as soon as the stock market closes, there's a finality to that day and you can rest in that and we can always try to figure out how to learn from that and then get up tomorrow and do it again. Um, but that creates some stability. But uh, uh, can I tell my Roger Fredrickson story? Yeah, absolutely. So it's um, Roger Fredrickson, um, just a giant of a man in, in my life and around Ottawa University and my dad. And uh, when I had two, my two children that are now 30, uh, my son was a toddler at that age where they're kind of pulling on your pants. I remember he's pulling on my pants. And my daughter was at the age where she was sticking her knees in my chest and I was trying to hold her and squirm. And I was talking to Roger Fredrickson, and he, he'd spoken at a, at a church, and whatever he said really inspired me. I thought, wow, I need to do something with my life. I need to, my dad was a college professor for 30 years. He did all this for students. My mother is a volunteer, and, and you know, I'm managing rich people's money. And I had this guilt about me or something. And I, <laughs> I went to Roger afterwards, and, and he, was, he was a rock star. He was like, everybody wanted to talk to him. So I went up to him, and he said, Wiley, how are you? And I said, what should I do with my life? And and I needed to do something and kind of explain to him what I was struggling with based on what he said. And he looked at me with this little girl in my arms and this little boy pulling my, my pants. And he said the most profound thing anyone's ever said to me. At the time, I thought it was ridiculously simplistic. He said, your hands are kind of full right now, Wiley. And I thought, that's it? That's all you got for me? 
Like, <laughs> you're Roger Fredrickson. That's all? I remember driving home and thinking, wow, that really wasn't a very good answer. But I'm still talking about it. And he was so right. I was, I was at a stage in my life where I needed to take care of my kids and I needed to help them grow. And there wasn't, there's later stages of my life I had the opportunity to travel to Varanasi, India and uh, help uh, an organization called Living Water International that drills wells there. Mm. And I saw little children just about the age of my daughter in that story I just told and beautiful little Indian girl and I talked to her through an interpreter and uh, talked to her mother. And as we left, the people we were left said, without fresh water, there's a one in 10 chance that she'll be alive in two years. This little beautiful girl. And I have no idea what happened to her. Mm -hmm. But so I, it's like there was, a t there was a season for that. And there was a season for your hands are kind of full right now while you take care of your kids. Mm -hmm. So it was pretty profound. What sort of um, philanthropy do you foresee doing in the next uh, upcoming years as you talked a little bit about uh, thinking about organizing your business so that you've got some plans of succession and whatnot and mm -hmm. so um, I didn't hear about the India thing before but are there other areas that you're especially interested in and yeah it's um, I, I give you a different answer today than I would have a couple of years ago I, I um, have been very active with Living Water International for a number of years and when I went and saw, it's, it's, it's easier to write a check than mm -hmm. it is to, to go and see people and see poverty. Yeah. Um, so how that translates to my answer now is I live in St. Louis, which is a city that's been torn up by racial, racial issues. Mm -hmm. And um, I have memories of seeing poverty in India when I was there. Uh, a man I can remember walking down the street in Varanasi seeing who literally had nothing but a loincloth. And the poverty of that just struck me. Well, two weeks ago, my wife and I were volunteering at a place called Bridge of Hope in St. Louis, which is about 10 miles from my house. And I met a man named Billy, who is a homeless man in St. Louis. By standards that we would all consider, Billy's way better off than the guy in Varanasi. Mm -hmm. But he still doesn't have a home, yeah. and, and, and he doesn't have a house. A home's kind of an abstract concept. He doesn't have a house. He, has a, he doesn't have a roof over his head. Um, so for me now, I think uh, for my wife and I, the coming years of this will be, I'm going to keep working with Living Water. I think it's a great organization. But I'm going to focus my attention on the city of St. Louis and, and some, some struggles that are there. I've got dear friends that are pastors of churches in the city. Mm -hmm. um, one of them has a um, has bulletproof doors on this church because bullets came in. That's I live 10 miles away. That's not even in my realm. I can't even comprehend. Yeah, St. Louis is an interesting city for that. You know, it's just, yeah. it depends on where you are. Yeah. yeah. And so to me, it's, I guess I'm, I'd summarize that by saying, I think where I feel called, my wife feels called is, is in her own city right now. And I think sometimes it's, in a weird way, it's easier to think about Africa or India or the problems there and write a check to that as opposed to going and seeing people and getting your hands dirty. Yeah. And so I think that's what I'm going to be called to do. I've been working with a group here locally called Ripples of Change. Um, and so I do some uh, consulting type work with people that are on the edge of poverty or in poverty. And the purpose of the group is to have 
you know, instead of uh, giving a man a fish, teaching a man to fish. Um, and so I did a research project with students here locally in Ottawa. And the issue was, are we just giving fish continuously or are we actually doing something that might help long-term poverty? Yeah. And in Ottawa here, the it was kind of obvious we've had like long-term child poverty rates and uh, some other things that it seemed like we have program over program. We got people with kind hearts and writing checks and whatnot, but are we doing something to structurally help that person help themselves to get out? Both relief efforts and what I call opportunity efforts, I think are needed, but we found that there was basically nobody doing that except for this one organization who's been kind of faltering over time. And that's what got me involved with them. Um, and so I, I think uh, having both in areas is important. Um, and uh, there might be some stuff we've done other analysis in other cities to see how much of that is going on. And so um, helping people, I, 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 this just this within the last three months, two of the people that I consulted with four years ago is when I first met them, they each just bo both bought their first house. Oh, wow. So that type yeah. of thing where they are really building up and then it kind of feeds back in and it creates social networks. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times people in poverty don't have that. And so part of the mission of the organization is to create these, help create these networks yeah. for people. So because birds of a feather tend to flock together. So what I, the, the thing behind the thing sometimes is what, what gets you. And what I learned at Bridge of Hope, I asked what percentage of the people that they, so they, they, they give a place for them to take showers, homeless people, and food and clothing. And what's how many of them are chemically dependent in some form? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the answer was ninety percent. And then they said, and the other ten percent aren't telling the truth. Mm -hmm. So it's basically <laughs> all of them. Yeah. Um, the people that are that they're serving have some type of uh, and mental disability and mental disabilities. And, too, yeah. and so if you don't address that. You're not really changing the cycle for them, yeah. and that's obviously a big issue that's way beyond my pay grade. But that's uh, that's something I think is that I learned a lot this, this the past yeah. few weeks. Good. Well, I think that looks like a good spot for a break, and so after we come back, I think we'll get into some of your opinions on tariff and world economy and other things we can start to tie back without leaving uh, maybe a little bit more on faith in your workplace. So we'll be back in 30 seconds. The Gortney Institute's vision, by 2030, the Gortney Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economics understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. The Institute will be a nationally recognized source for knowledge and contributions to student experience, society's understanding of private and public solutions to poverty, and the overlap of markets, governance, and faith. Young audiences will look to the Institute for challenging and engaging education on faith and economics. Please visit our website at 123povertysucks.org. There you will find our events, blog, and our swag shop. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 123povertysucks or on Facebook at Gortney Institute for updates on our activities and research. If you enjoy our podcast and want to support our work, please consider a one-time or recurring donation. Please visit donate.123 
123povertysex.org. Okay, we're back. We got uh, Wiley Angel here, and I uh, wanted to, um, before we get into some maybe some other topics about the world, um, do you incorporate at all directly or overtly faith in your workplace since you're the boss and you kind of own the place, or do you um, shy away from that or not? Uh, I think everybody has different um, reasons in that. Do you keep it mostly secular or... Um, and then I was also just out of curiosity what, uh, like denomination, I know your dad was a uh, Baptist, mm -hmm. uh, card carrying Baptist, uh, mm -hmm. all the way. And so I was just curious where, where you fell with denominations as you've, you know, developed, uh, your own family and your own faith. Yeah. So I'm, uh, I'm honored to be a board member on a, a church in St. Louis called the, the Crossing, which is a non-denominational. Okay. Um, multi-site church so it's it's really cool because uh utilize technology yeah um, one of the big ones big ones where yeah, they got so it's a, the ability to take technology and and put it in different parts of st louis yeah and we even have churches that are rural churches which i near dear to my heart growing up in ottawa but also growing up in on the farm in the summers plains kansas mm -hmm. little tiny baptist church and like, how do those churches have enough resources so our church is kind of empowering a lot of those churches through our technology. So that's, mm -hmm. that's kind of fun. So, but yeah. non-denominational. Um, that said, um, most of the people have a Baptist back, background. I've noticed Baptist. that with non-denominational -denomin yeah. non churches tend to have a little more of that yeah. Baptist uh, yeah. flavor, yeah. I guess, for lack of a better word. Yeah, so. definitely. So and then in terms of the other question, I, I'm really blessed because I have a group of people that have worked for me for a really long time. Oh, so, so they, most of your employees, so, you're mentioning the one guy yeah. that's been there for a while. But most of your employees. He's have been the newest. He's been here 14 years. Um, I was a guy that I, I've known, I, I met on my first job in 85. I've been, he's worked with me this entire time. He happens to be from Topeka, oh. local Kansas guy. So uh, we talk about Jayhawk basketball together. Um, but when you have people that Levi, you, settle down. Yeah, he's, sorry. He's a, he's a K-State. So I, I always see his hat. <laughs> like, he was a KU grad, but I don't know if you were. You don't have the same affinity as people football. who do their undergrad. I, so, I didn't say football. <laughs> well, he's got the K-State hat on. Okay. I said basketball. So, <laughs> um, so, but I think that impacts your question. Um, when I, I, there's people in that work for me right now that are going through some some health issues and some health issues with their children. And how many employees do you have? It's a small. Group, it's a small right? group. So I got the, the big. The big company is. is a lot but my specific group is 15 okay so it's a so you guys have known each other forever, forever. and yeah and, okay. and so when people go through hard times we kind of go through it together it sounds cliche but it's true mm -hmm. um it's been a big deal for me and, and i can say i'm praying for your daughter and that's okay mm -hmm. and because they know me i think if i had a brand new employee i don't know i'd probably be a little bit more careful about that um but it's um I think given the longevity of the relationship, it's a, it's a lot easier mm -hmm. in, in that regard to be more open about that. 
So I had a question about, uh, you know, your day-to-day -day work. And one of the things that you brought up in the discussion earlier is, and that I think is great, is that, you know, wealth enables you to help people who really need helping. And I think that, you know, your work in India that you were talking about is laudable and very impressive. Uh, but I'm wondering if there's things in your day-to-day -day work that, uh, you know, you really find deep meaning in, uh, yeah. in the finance sector. Yeah. I think the answer would be different. 10 years ago than it is today. Um, I spent a good portion of my career, sound like a hermit, but I would be in an office with, <laughs> with screens and, and my, my family, in quotes, was the stocks and bonds I was looking at on the screen. So it was, um, but I was on the phone and I was having relationships with people I was trading with. As a sidebar, um, I started trading uh, futures contracts in 1985 and I would do hundreds of millions of dollars of transactions on nothing but my word he would say on the phone I want to I want to sell 200 contracts and they'd say okay and there's lots of semantics back and forth to make yeah. sure it was working I was walking down the street in New York City uh, midtown and also I heard somebody say Wiley I turned around and it was a guy named David that I used to work with at Merrill Lynch and those relationships. And it was, it just was the coolest thing. We did billions of dollars of transactions over the phone, hardly ever saw each other face to face. So I had those connections. And so that's a long answer. What today, what I love and get the most out of is, is public speaking, getting out in the world and promoting my firm and my products. Um, and so it's the interactions with people. That's a long answer. The short answer is interaction with people, the people I work with. Um, that's where I get excited. And I think, like I told your class earlier, Russ, it's uh, what you're good at is obviously what you enjoy. And mm -hmm. so I enjoy people. I enjoy being with people, and I get a lot out of it. Uh, sometimes. And your dad was a people person. He was. Too, or yeah. still is. And my mom. Said, yes. And my mom. And your mom, too, of yeah. course. My yeah. mom is. Uh, <laughs> She's really. The my mom had a little butterfly. health issue recently, and I had her in the emergency room, and the chief medical officer at the hospital in, in Laguna Beach walked by and, and knew my mother by name because she knows everybody. <laughs> 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 so that's that's kind of a, what I get the most out of is, is meeting people hearing people's stories, learning from people. My dad, the professor, would always say, if you ever stop learning, you're done. You've got to always learn. So the way you learn is you meet people and talk to them. All right, so how about tariffs? Um, in my class, you mentioned something about you thought that the tariffs deal was overblown. I don't know if that's a <laughs> close to a direct quote or not, but... Uh, What's, what's your thoughts on all this uh, tariff work? So just, just for our listeners, uh, hopefully most of you are familiar with this, but we're in a little bit of a trade war with uh, China in the sense that we don't like what they've been doing um, with uh, maybe some intellectual property, among other things. And so we're, we threaten tariffs. We put on a tariff. They put up a tariff. So we're putting up the, we're building up these tariff barriers. And so, um, Maybe you could start a little bit on how that affects financial markets and what you've seen with even maybe uh, stuff that you've managed or just in general, uh, whatever, whatever works. Yeah, I think, um, and tie it back to a question I got from one of your students about the, the, the world we live in now. There's so much information out there compared to when I started in the business where you had to go research things. Mm -hmm. Almost too much information. Yeah. And so how do you take all this information and then boil it down to what matters? And then, of course, there's hyperbole in the press because that's their job. they got to get people to watch or click or whatever they're going to do. 
So I think all these things get blown out of proportion if I make a generic statement. Yeah. And when it comes to trade, and there's no question that this has been blown out of proportion. And I would, uh, there's been recently, uh, I would argue that companies have used the trade war, in quotes, as an excuse for bad management. Mm. I, would, I won't name yeah, it. Nice, name a nice little scapegoat. I, w- I was going to name a specific company, but since I said bad management, I won't name it. <laughs> companies recently have come out and used the trade issue as a reason for their, uh-huh. their missing targets or uh, missing forecasts. Um, my take on it is um, if you look at the main trade war we have with China, um, the president is negotiating in an incredible position of strength. The U.S. economy is accelerating, maybe at a slowing rate. Uh, the Chinese economy is decelerating, and I would argue at a rate much faster than they're publicly suggesting. They're, yeah, they're not. They're not good at giving us hard numbers. Always. That's 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 a kind way of saying it. So that's first of all, if you're negotiating, they're not real friendly to third-party audits. They are not. Books, they are so, not. Yeah. So um, if you're negotiating against someone where your economy is accelerating, there's a decelerating. Number one, you have an advantage. Um, secondly, if you take the exports of China to the United States as a percentage of their GDP, it's about seven times larger than the U.S. exports to China as a percentage of our GDP. Which little sense you bring up sidebars, we're an exporter of chopsticks to China. I don't know if a lot of people know know that. that. Yeah, so so that's a little known fact that we got that on them. They can't eat if if we uh, get into a real... We also export a lot of soybeans. So (laughs) that's food itself. Yeah, the soybeans. (laughs) And and by the way, since I come from a farming family, um, when I talk about this, I'm speaking in a macroeconomic sense. There are certainly soybean farmers or there's people, individuals that certainly can be hurt. I don't mean to make light of that. Right. But broadly speaking, I tend to be a, a, a macro guy where I'll look, if you look at consumers and consumer spending and where, if, if this trade war was causing all these problems that it was supposedly gonna cause, there wouldn't be, Walmart wouldn't be doing the sales they're doing. Yeah. Uh, Costco wouldn't be doing the sales that they're doing. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not impacting the economy. The other thing that I noticed that the president recently spoke about, um, something I've been talking about for a while, is the Chinese have devalued their currency at almost the exact rate of the of the uh, tariffs. Mm-hmm. So net net, which they never let happen before. Of course. When so were, yeah. I think that um, that's not a coincidence. So I think that net net, the uh, WalMarts of the world importing have not been uh, impacted as greatly as, as wow. one would expect. The other thing is one of the great things about capitalism, and if you look to take Walmart as an example, and now Amazon of course is competing, but Walmart has made a business for decades at keeping their costs down. And so they go find goods at, at better prices and they will find goods from other parts of the world in China if this continues. Uh, I think we can be pretty sure of that. So that's, uh, that, yeah. I think that system works pretty well. Well, and that's, and that, I, I think just to put it in context too, I mean, you know, the, the tariffs that the U.S. has imposed on Chinese goods in terms of the total value of the products that's, that are actually transacting across the borders, uh, it's 100 $150 billion worth of goods from the U.S. Are, are, have these extra tariffs on them from China due to this one trade war. And I'll, I'll put a link up to this uh, that kind of convenient little timeline that goes through all the events and, and, and updates fairly regularly. And then from our perspective, you know, the tariffs we're putting on their goods, 
that the total amount of the goods is only 550 billion. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that sounds like a big number, but when you're talking about, you know, the entirety of these two economies, I mean, it's just not, you know, like you said, it's, it's affecting specific sectors, but it's just not this catastrophe that, you know, everybody wants to make it out to be, it seems like. Agreed. And I think, I think the the economic numbers and corporate profits that we've seen Mm -hmm. reported in the sectors that should have been impacted by this, uh, yeah. has not is not been there. So, right, right. And, and a lot of that has to go back to basic economics. You go back to employment is strong, um, and if people are employed and they they can still afford to buy their their goods, they're going to go buy their goods. So it's uh, it gets back to uh, the consumer at the at the micro level. If they've got if they got a job and and mm-hmm. stability in their job, they're going to go buy their goods. Yeah. Well, I, since we're talking about kind of economic uh, regulation policy and stuff like that, I wanted to ask, so a few years ago, I wrote a paper with a colleague uh, at my previous um, university, and we were looking at bank profits in the U.S. We got a bunch of data on, uh, you know, <clears throat> all the financials for pretty much every bank in the country, and we were looking at how regulation affected their returns. And what we showed is that the smaller banks by total asset size or by revenue or you know, whatever measure of size you wanted to use, the smaller banks, the hit they took from Dodd-Frank, uh, the, this massive uh, increase in banking regulation that passed several years ago, um, was far more dramatic than the hit that the largest firms in the industry took. I mean, so Bank of America didn't even you know, there was no effect of the regulate of that new massive increase in regulation yep. on their bottom line, but all these smaller banks just got smashed. Mm-hmm. And so, and since, this was written when? How long ago? Well, so we wrote it. I, I wrote it with them in, I would say probably sixteen and seventeen. Mm-hmm. But you know, obviously the at that time that was when you know Trump had gotten elected, and so everything was starting to uh, you know swing around. And I think since then a lot of that stuff ha- has been repealed. And so obviously, it'd be nice to update our paper here in a few years, but, yeah. uh, you know, ac- academia is always slow to act on these things. <laughs> right. But, but in my what, world, we buy, we've been bought, we would rather buy small cap or, or mid cap financials because in the deregulation period, they should benefit. Right. So in the, yeah, yeah, obviously three, you flip right? it around yeah. in the deregulation, all the ones that didn't get bought up, you know, cause they were flailing and, and about to fail or whatever. Yeah. So how do you think the, the deregulation period has come for that? So just to kind of help me update on. Yeah. I think there's no question. It's this, um, uh, President Obama famously said with a phone and a pen, I can change regulations. Mm-hmm. I don't, yeah. I'm not sure why he needed the phone, but I guess to tell people, <laughs> yeah. that, right? um, President Trump has certainly repealed a lot of that. And I think the data will show when you do that research that the, the reverse has, has happened, mm-hmm. which okay. you would expect, Sure. which is um, if you take a, um, a regional bank, a PNC, or even a U.S. bank, Mm-hmm. which is a tr- more of a traditional bank. As somebody who analyzes companies and analyzes balance sheets and income statements, it's a lot easier to understand U.S. Bank than Morgan Stanley right. or Goldman Sachs, which <laughs> sure. has lots of, we were talking about this yeah. earlier, those companies can have trading profits that can impact their, their mm-hmm. bottom line, which may not be repeatable mm-hmm. with all due respect yeah. to those traders, some of which I know. Yeah, well, yeah so whereas, whereas the traditional banks, it's, it's more of a traditional uh, a loan is a loan kind of thing. Yeah. yeah and right. so I yeah. think I think the difficulty you would find in an academic sense is at the same time this is all happening, the yield curve is flattened dramatically. Right. Yeah. And so as a bank, if you're a traditional bank, right. your profits with a flat yield curve, it's pretty tough. 
So yeah, borrow short lend long doesn't work as well. It doesn't yeah. work. There's, yeah. You can do it, but there's no the yield curve flat. Right. Yeah. So the deregulation in theory, I think, and I think you can prove it has helped. But I think it's going to, if you look at the underlying financials for for proof of that, mm -hmm. you're going to have at the same time the yield curve is flattening dramatically. So it's that's yeah. going to be a negative to offset. Well, we have our ways of controlling. For I'm that, sure. So. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Good. Good. Um, just one quick question, and I think we'll be about ready to wrap. You mentioned regulation and finance. Uh, you've been at this now for, what is it, 25, 30 years? Yeah. Um, <laughs> kind of describe for us what that means in terms of cost to your company and frictions that it creates in markets uh, of just what you've observed in your in things, and maybe if examples come to mind, great, or whatever. Yeah, and it's, it's a sticky subject because... Um, I have compliance people that, that I work with that are amazing people doing their jobs. So I'm respectful of them and, and um, a lot of good is, is done by that, that team. But it's so much of it, and I'm talking my position here, we all are. Yeah. But there's so much of the regulation that you think, okay, this isn't doing what they wanted it to do. Mm. If you're trying yeah. to help the, the small investor, a lot of times regulation yeah. does the exact opposite. Right. Sure. People are trying to help you hurt. Right. And big people so, figure out ways around it and make more money than yeah. they were before. Or and so that's frustrating. And back to your point about your, your research, the big banks, they have the capacity to lobby and they have a, a team yeah. of, of lawyers. And, Regulatory and, capture. And, yeah. a, and my, my father and, and his brother owned banks in yeah. Kelso Grove and Pleasanton and Hume, Missouri, that little banks. Mm -hmm. Those banks don't exist anymore. I, I, I actually, those exact banks, I don't know. And generically speaking, yeah. small banks, yeah. it's hard to exist um, in a highly regulated world. Right. And I'm a big believer in, in small community-centric banks. Yeah. Back to relationships. Yeah. And community and the Community Reinvestment Act is kind of all about that in a way. If, that's what, if it's about reinvesting in your community, if you took that to extreme, wouldn't you want to like, try to incent uh, smaller banks versus big banks, but the, the regulation did the exact opposite to use the banking industry to do my industry. Um, it, it's to the place where sometimes I can't answer questions as candidly and as honestly as I'd like to, because I've got the, the compliance yeah, right. overlay in my head. Yeah. And I think it'd be better for my clients to be able to hear a clean, concise answer. Yeah. And I try to, but it's, right. you always have this filter you have to run yeah. through it, which is, which is too bad. I, yeah. don't, I don't think it accomplishes. I'm not saying all regulations are bad sure. by any stretch, right. but I think we went after 2008, you, we went through an environment. You mentioned Don Frank. It's a, it's been an environment that went, in my opinion, too far. Mm -hmm. And I think there's been some advantages in, in deregulation. And I'll tell you, um, you can talk about if you're an, an economist who likes supply cider, like the friends of my dad, like guys like Art Laffer and <laughs> yeah. that crew would love, um, Tax cuts, I think it's pretty hard to put a value on on the deregulation on the economy. Yeah, yeah but I think that's been. But pretty, I think it's been huge. Pretty, I do too. I, I, I do too. I've been saying that since the Trump yeah. administration started. That yeah. I thought that has been the monumental thing. Actually, it's yeah. been kind of this hidden giant because you can't quantify it very easily. Can. But as far as uh, producer expectations and and business expectations on you know future profits and like okay, we're starting to a new regime where that filter that you're talking about, that thing that's always hanging around is at least not going to get bigger. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because you had to prepare ex expectations wise that 
it might get worse here if, right. if Hillary Clinton gets elected. We know the direction it's going to head. It's certainly not going to shrink. It wouldn't go that direction. And so I think that was huge for the all the the benefits that we've seen in the economy, um, more much more so than uh, even the the tax effect and and some other things that have gone. On. And then if, if I could just to, to translate it to the energy industry, mm -hmm. we just had an yeah. event happen in Saudi Arabia. Uh, Saudi Arabia produces twelve percent of the world's oil supply. The United States is eighteen percent. Yeah. We are, quote, energy independent. So why do we have to buy oil from Saudi Arabia? Well, Saudi Arabia can turn on a spigot with oil quicker than anybody else. Mm -hmm. And so if you, when you go to the oil markets daily, Saudi Arabia is kind of the, like the Fed is the lender of last resort. They're kind of the <laughs> oil supplier of last <laughs> right. resort. And they, so they kind of set the price. Yeah. But um, I know there's some political things around deregulation in the industry that the, the uh, energy industry as it relates to the environment and so forth. But yeah. if you think about this in an economic sense, that's been a huge windfall. I mean, the price of oil with that whole, the price of gasoline, when that whole thing hit, was that week, two weeks ago? Yeah. Um, yeah. Went up 40 cents. And it's a blip in the line. If you look at a, a chart of the price of oil over the last year, it's still 50, 60 cents lower than it was a year ago and a dollar less than it was two years ago. The price of gasoline, and we all we talk about inflation. We always look at oil or gasoline prices because we all fill up our tank all the time, except yeah. for my mother who has an electric car. Ah, <laughs> she went. She go Tesla. She has a she has a she has a Jaguar. Oh, I pace. Is that all? That's all electric. All electric. Oh, I haven't even heard about that. Yeah, she's so. pretty hip. She's pretty hip. All right. Well, that looks like a good place to end. Uh, thank you very much, Wiley, for being our guest today. And uh, to it was informative to learn more about your personal story as well as your expertise in world uh, financial markets. So on behalf of the Gorton Institute, uh, I'd like to thank you for listening. And if you enjoy what you hear, um, be sure to subscribe on your podcast, whatever podcast app you use. And that helps us rise in the ranks for our Faith and Economics podcast. Um, other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.